It is good to, uh, to see everyone. <clears throat> you all look uh, fairly awake, uh, which I'm grateful uh, to see that. We, uh, we decided to make uh, donuts available and let the kids come in their pajamas uh, and celebrate this morning um, <clears throat> or sleep this morning. Uh, Amelia came downstairs in her pajamas and she said, Dad, I'm going to ride with you. And I said, you're not ready for church. And uh, then I thought, oh, yeah, you are ready for church. Uh, we would have allowed uh, all the adults to wear pajamas, um, but um, one of the pastors, uh, I won't name names, but it's not me, uh, actually wears a onesie pajama, and I just thought that would be weird. Um, and so we decided not to extend that uh, to you all, uh, but <clears throat> I'm excited uh, that we're here, uh, even if an hour was robbed uh, from us. Um, we are approaching Easter. Last year was uh, my first Easter in Michigan, and I, I learned that in Michigan, um, Easter doesn't mean uh, blue skies and the sun is out, a uh, beautiful day to enjoy in the backyard with the family. I, uh, I realized that uh, in Michigan, Easter might mean uh, weather in the 30s with sleet or snow. Uh, I believe last year, uh, the day before Easter, it was about 30-ish uh, with uh, freezing rain uh, falling. And so <clears throat> when, we, when we think about Easter, it doesn't give us the, the warm fuzzies, uh, perhaps like Christmas does, but Easter is at the center of the Christian faith. And over these next six weeks, I want to begin um, taking a journey to the cross, which is what Easter is all about. Easter is about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And, and the, the Easter story, the passion narrative, as it's called throughout uh, the Gospels, points to us, points us to the cross. It shows us Jesus' journey to the cross. And in many ways, uh, all four Gospel accounts in the New Testament uh, are really a big journey to the cross. Only Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth of Christ, but, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us about the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus' journey to the cross is at the center of our faith, but what I want to do over the next six weeks is take a look at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22 through 24, uh, the tail end uh, of the Gospel of Luke, so that we can see Jesus' journey to the cross and see how he beckons us to take our own journey to the cross. He invites us to come to the cross. Historically, the church celebrates uh, during this time or practices what's called Lent. Uh, Lent, which means 40th in, in Latin, is uh, from Ash Wednesday, which would have been last Wednesday, through Easter Sunday. It's a season of fasting and preparation to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and so during this Lenten season, I want us to, to turn our eyes and our hearts towards Jesus. Uh, towards his passion, towards his journey to the cross, and see how it beckons us to come to the cross. It calls us to come in humble repentance, turning from our sin, and trusting in Christ and what he accomplished for us, as well as it calls us to, to come and be transformed. When we come to the cross, we are transformed uh, by the cross and by Jesus. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry, one moment. Uh, I think our pack is dead. Um, <clears throat> So over these next six weeks, our, our focus will be looking, looking at Luke chapter 22 through 24 to examine this journey to the cross and to see how Jesus calls us uh, to that same journey. So Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23, you, you heard read this morning, but uh, these verses really are all about um, a meal. 
Uh, and I don't know if, uh, if you're like me, but I, I love a good meal. And if you can't tell, I haven't missed many meals in my life. I, I love to eat. I, I love good food. And uh, one of my favorite uh, experiences <clears throat> is going uh, home after I've been gone for a while. Uh, you know that experience of getting mom's home-cooked meal? Um, <clears throat> there's something, uh, something special, a treat about getting to go home and, and eating a meal that you know has been prepared just for you. So uh, <clears throat> for me, often I'll go home and uh, before, usually the week before I go home, whether it's my mom or even uh, Emily's family, will get the message, hey, what do you want to eat while you're in town, right? And I love that message. Usually I, I begin kind of coy. I say, you know, hey, whatever you want to make, I'm game for, right? Uh, I'll eat anything uh, that you make. And, uh, and usually I'll get a little pushback and say, no, really, what do, you, what do you want? I really would like to make you some of your, your favorite things. And then I'm like, well, actually, I want beef stromboli. I want broccoli cheddar soup. I want pancakes and chocolate gravy. If we could have some steak and zucchini and squash. And, uh, you know, could you make the chocolate chunk cake or the, the peanut butter pie? And, you know, I just lay it all out. And then there's something that's, obviously, it's a, it's a treat to enjoy it. But when you know that somebody who loves you has thought enough ahead of time to prepare something for you that you might enjoy, that's a real treat. Uh, to, to, to eat and to, to delight in the food that's been prepared for you. I, I am a foodie. I'm not trying to make too big of a deal about food. It's actually not the food that makes it so special. It's the fact that somebody cared enough about you to prepare it for you. And that's, that's exactly what we're going to see happen in Luke 22. It's a story about a meal, but it's so much more than a meal. Luke 22, verses 1 through 23, if you have the Bible next to you, in, in verse, uh, page 881 is where you'll find this passage. This meal, the Lord's meal, or the, the Lord's Supper, which we'll take today as a church, is a meal that teaches us about the cross. As we begin this journey to the cross we see that the, the message of the cross is explained and, and represented, put on display through the Lord's Supper, through this meal that Jesus holds with his disciples. Uh, and so as we look at verses 22, verses 1 through 23, I'm not going to read all of the text uh, because uh, we've, we've heard it read, but I, I want to ask two questions. And, and the first question is this, who is responsible for the cross? Uh, our, our passage is about the Lord's Supper, but it, it's more than just a meal, it's pointing us to the cross. And so it, it forces upon us questions about the cross. Who was responsible for the cross? We see a number of different uh, characters that, that come onto to the scene. Uh, and, <clears throat> and then we, we see that the, the occasion uh, for this passage is uh, known as the Passover. You see in verse, verse 1, we see that there's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Uh, and then uh, something called the Passover. Um, <clears throat> and I apologize for our technical difficulties. Um, but uh, you guys hear me okay? All right? All right. Um, so <clears throat> the occasion that we have here for our passage is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover. These two things actually uh, kind of get lumped together. But really the Passover is what kicks off the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The Passover is what Israel celebrated uh, when they came out of Egypt, from bondage in Egypt, when God delivered them by His strong and mighty hand 
from their bondage in Egypt. And they, they ate unleavened bread and they, they made a, a sacrifice. You, you might remember, some of us have been reading through uh, the Bible as a, as a church. And in Exodus, uh, God told His people that they were to take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb. And take the, the blood and, and daub it over the doorposts of their house. And when God brought judgment upon all the firstborn in Egypt, God would pass over the houses that had applied the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And then God brought them out of Egypt in the night, uh, delivered them from Pharaoh and under the oppression of the Egyptians. And, and the Passover is a meal as they ate the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs that were uh, pushed into, that were um, put into the, to the roasted lamb and they drank the wine. They were reminded of God's redemption. It, it, was a, it was a meal that pointed them to God's redemption every time that they would gather they would remember how God delivered them. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread followed it as a, a continuation of a reminder of how God had been with Israel even throughout the wilderness, providing for their needs, meeting them with a meal daily of bread and of quail. And, and so here's the occasion that's been set up, and it, it couldn't be more fitting to see the cross in light of the Passover. Jesus is going to show us that it's only by His blood when it's put over our lives, when we've trusted in Him by faith, that we're spared the judgment of God. And, and He's putting this all together now. And, and we're introduced to a few different groups. We see the religious leaders of, of Israel. We, we see them known as the, uh, the, the chief priests and the scribes. Later on, we'll see the officers of the temple court that are mentioned. We, we see Satan. Uh, that influences Judas in verse 3. And, uh, and then we see Judas Iscariot, who uh, is most known for what he is about to do in this passage. We see that Judas is one numbered among the twelve. Uh, in a way, it's that, that small statement that makes his betrayal so stinging. Uh, one of the closest to Jesus is the one who would betray him. So we see in verses 1-6, through six, the religious leaders were plotting looking for a chance to kill Jesus. Satan was scheming, influencing Judas, and Judas was betraying. The religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat. <clears throat> when, when you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, um, the crowds flock to Jesus. We, we see Jesus have all kinds of interactions with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, but, but it's actually here, not just the Pharisees, but the, the leaders of the temple, those who are the real power brokers in Israel. And it doesn't tell us exactly why, but it says in verse 2, if you look, they wanted to put him to death, for they feared the people. It doesn't say exactly why. Perhaps they feared uh, the people in the sense that they were envious of Jesus' draw of the people. Uh, the Passover would have brought hundreds of thousands uh, of Jews into Jerusalem to, to celebrate uh, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And, he, and they know Jesus is in town. And they know Jesus has been gaining uh, popularity. And, and people are wanting to come and hear him teach and see his miracles and be healed by him and to hear what he has to say. Or perhaps they're afraid that the people will, will get out of hand and Rome will catch, catch wind of what's happening and, and they'll be pressed under the, the thumb of the Romans. But either way, they, they fear people and so they seek to put Jesus to death. And then we see Satan, who, which literally means adversary, who so the scriptures say has been sinning from the beginning. Uh, he's been scheming from the beginning, saying to us, did God really say, do you really have to do that? Is that really that bad? Dismissing sin, minimizing God's judgment. 
And we see throughout Scripture that Satan is a, is a fallen angel who rebels against God in pride and is cast out of heaven. And, and isn't omniscient, isn't the force that's equal with God somehow competing against him, but, but has been given domain in this world and he seeks, Scripture says, to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he seeks to rob God's word from our hearts that we might not believe it. And, and he's been trying to, to trip up Jesus his whole life. In the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 4, it accounts how Jesus is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And, and Satan comes to him and tempts him to, to, to abandon God's will, uh, God's mission, by going against God's will. He says, you don't, you don't need uh, to trust in God. Tell this, tell this bread, this stone, to turn into bread. If you throw yourself down, God will protect you. You don't have to listen to what God says. And Jesus continually rebuffs his temptations with God's word. And then in verse 13, it says of Luke chapter 4, the devil, when he had ended the, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. Well, now the time had come. And Judas was the man. Judas was the opportune time, the right person at the right time. It doesn't tell us why Judas did what he did. We, we know that Judas was the treasurer. He took care of the money from other gospel accounts. We know that he often dipped into the bag of money. He was upset when um, an expensive perfume was spilt on Jesus. It doesn't say it exactly, but we know that money has been the snare of many people along the way, desiring material gain and being tripped up in their pursuit of Jesus. We don't know what, what really influenced him, but we know he opened himself up to Satan's influence. It, it's a reminder. This passage kind of goes against some of our sensibilities, like Satan, Ju- Judas. Like, how, how does that all work? What does that look like? It, it doesn't say that, you know, Satan uh, possessed Judas and he, you know, was like the demoniac going around running like crazy. No, he seemed very much himself. Somewhere along the way in the deep rec- recess of his heart, he opened himself up to be used. By Satan, that there are true cosmic powers at play and at work in our lives, and that often get expressed when people choose to to sin against God and to go against Him. One commentator said it this way Satan entered Judas, and Judas left Jesus. There couldn't be a more fateful exchange. Judas, who was one of the twelve, now turns his back on Jesus. And Judas fails to remember what Jesus had just said. In Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36, it says, Jesus told the disciples, stay awake, watch, be ready. The hour is coming. Judas failed to listen. So here we see the religious leaders and Satan's influence and and Judas and and this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death for the cross. And our first answer is simply this, that Jesus was put to death by sinners. The religious leaders and, and Judas, we, we see how it plays out, that sin is rebellion against God. It's elevating anything, desire for power, desire for money above God in our lives. It's, it's looking, uh, it, sin is the, rooted in the devil's scheme that we see in John 10 to still kill and destroy Sin is the willful rebellion and rejection of God and His Word. And when sinners come to Jesus, they don't embrace Him by faith. The religious leaders and Judas and the crowds that gathered in Jerusalem in just a few days' time, 
y'all crucify him. And they put him to death. Jesus was put to death by sinners. According, just like the desires of Satan would have wanted it, and just like we, apart from God's grace and intervention in our hearts, would have done. If I could make it more personally, I would say this. Not only was Jesus put to death by sinners, Jesus was put to death by me and you. We did it. I know you weren't there on that fateful day. You weren't in the crowd yelling, crucify him. But weren't we? Wouldn't we have been? I think if we're honest with ourselves, when we look at Judas, we we shouldn't dare look down on Judas. In fact, we probably should see ourselves in Judas. So close and so familiar, and yet we can be so indifferent. Hebrews 6 says that when we turn away from Christ, we crucify the Son of God all over again and put Him to public shame. We too, one commentator would say, sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas and to our envy like the priest and to our ambition like Pilate. Guilty of crucifying the Lord. There's an old hymn writer, a Scottish hymn writer. I wish I had a good Scottish accent to do this for you in, but uh, I'll spare you my attempt. But Horatius Bonar was his name. And he put this truth to song. He said, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood." I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. As if I mocked alone alone. John Stott in his book called The Cross of Christ, which if you have time to read someday, I would encourage you to do so. He said, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we must understand that the cross was something done by us. We put Jesus to death. I know you might think, chill out, Michael. Like, No need to get all heavy handed here, calling us guilty. But I can't say anything less than what God would say to us. Here, here we see the, the juxtaposition of, of Judas's betrayal and, and Jesus preparing the Lord's Supper. And we can't help but be reminded that we, we are guilty sinners like Judas in need of God's love and grace that Jesus prepared for us on the cross. We put him to death. So I don't mean to, to personally offend you. I mean to tell you what God says so that if that offense might awaken in you an awareness of your need for God, that you might then run to him and find him to be the shelter and the refuge that you need. And believer, can I ask you, have you forgotten why Jesus died? Have you forgotten that he died on the cross for our sins? I, I've heard it said, and some of you were in a, a quip class that we did recently, and uh, this is an observation that um, somebody else made. She said that uh, as she interacts with people outside of the church, they are very aware of the problems that we face, very aware of personal problems, the problems that are at work in the world, but there are no real answers that they have, no real eternal satisfying answers. But when you get into the church, the, the opposite happens, and it's, it's sad because we, we have the answers, the, the eternally true and satisfying answers, but we're unwilling to really address the problems in our lives and apply the answers that we have through the cross to our lives. 
And, and as I read that, I thought, man, it's so, it's so true. It's so easy for us to talk about the Bible or, or get into discussion. And, and we talk theoretically about how struggles happen and how people have questions. And, and we don't actually get real enough to say, here's my question. Here's, here's my struggle. Here's where I'm failing to believe. We, we say that it's okay to not be okay, but we don't really want to be the one that's not okay. But the cross tells us you're not okay. Don't pretend. You don't have to pretend here. All of us are guilty and broken. You see, as believers, not only do we know that our sin put Jesus on the cross, but we are aware that even after we've come to faith in Christ, that sin remains within us. We are, here, here's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross and you put your trust in Him, you were freed from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. So as a believer, when you sin, you can know that you can run to Christ and, and seek His forgiveness and be renewed in the, in the confidence and the assurance that Christ forgives you. If he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1.9 says, He will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We are not free, though, from the power of sin, from, from its ongoing presence, I should say, in our lives. Its power remains when we give ourselves to it, when we welcome the temptation, we linger with the thought, whether it be our anger or, or our impatience or our selfishness or our lust or our pride or the desire to make ourselves appear better before others and to, to posture ourselves to do so. All of those temptations are lurking. Seeking to have their way over us. And the cross has freed us from the guilt and the condemnation, the power. We don't have to sin again. But its presence is still there. Its temptations are so real. We have an enemy who seeks to trip us up. We put Jesus to death. We're guilty. But there's a second answer that confounds the mind and yet speaks to us about the love of God. Jesus was put to death by sinners like you and me, but do you know that Jesus was put to death according to the plan of God? If you skip down to verses 21 through 23, we see this statement in verses 21 through 23. Jesus, at the end of the supper, he said, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be? Who is going to do this? This statement and and the other gospel accounts is actually put at the beginning of the Lord's Supper. Luke records it here at the end. Uh, This is how Jesus began uh, and and the other accounts. And and Luke is is here putting that at the end. And it, it shows us that though Jesus is betrayed by a sinner like Judas, Jesus is betrayed just as it has been planned, according to what has been determined. Throughout verses 7 through 10, we see Jesus makes clear he knows what's happening. He wants to celebrate the Lord's Supper before he suffers. He knows he's going to the cross and he's showing them how the Lord's Supper speaks and explains the cross. Jesus, when, when, when I, I get to Easter time, usually on the History Channel, uh, we've, we've cut the cord officially, so now I don't know if we can get this on the History Channel or not, but um, usually something comes out about Jesus on the History Channel. Um, spoiler alert, usually they don't embrace uh, Jesus as the true Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose historically bodily from the dead and one day will come again. There's usually some other explanation uh, for Jesus in the History Channel exclusive. Uh, don't mean to spoil it for you, but if you watch it, that's what you'll get. Um, but it amazes me when, when, I, when I hear, sometimes the thought is, well, 
Jesus was a, a Galilean peasant who gained a gathering and he had no awareness that he was going to die in this way and, and that his believers were going to take this story and, you know, really run with it. And I mean, and look, we've got some real runway with this thing, right? 2,000 years later, we're still going pretty strong. Um, it's kind of, that's kind of a, a skeptical uh, thought that Jesus couldn't have known and that his believers, his, his disciples, his followers took his message, a message of self-sacrificial love, and blew it up into this thing that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead and that you should worship him. When I look at verses 7 through 20, which we will here in a minute, I don't see a simple peasant who doesn't know what's about to happen. I see the Son of God who came to seek and save sinners, who knew that he was going to lay down his life even for the very one who would betray him. He was a man on a mission. He was born to die. He was born for the cross. The cross was his mission. The cross is why he came. It wasn't an after fact, after the fact plan. It was plan A from the beginning. And Peter's sermon in Acts 22, I don't have time to, to read it all, but he says in verses 23 through 24 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he says to that crowd that was gathered there at Pentecost who would have been the same crowd yelling crucify him, he says, you killed him, but God raised him. But it was all according to God's plan. See, there's this truth, these two truths that we must hold together. Once again, I reference back to, to who I mentioned earlier, John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, as we face the cross, we can say to ourselves, both I did it, my sin sent him there, and he did it. His love took him there. Our sin, his love. Who's responsible for the cross? We are. God is. This is the gospel. We put him on the cross. According to God's determined plan. And he raised him from the dead. Not only do we see who is responsible for the cross, but the heart of this message is who is the cross for? In verses 7 through 20, we see this message. In verses 7 through 13, we see the preparation for the Lord's Supper, a reminder that, that Jesus has been uh, working out all of the plans for this moment. He sends his disciples into town and he says, look for a guy with a jar. It sounds somewhat uh, humorous, actually, if you think about it. And on first hand, you're like, it'd be like me sending you to the grocery store and saying, look for the person in the jeans. Uh, and they'll tell you what to do, right? It's, it's like, come on, Jesus, give me some more information. However, most likely would have been uh, the women at the time who had been carrying the jar of water during the day. And so it would have stuck out to them to find this man carrying a jug of water. Um, but uh, Jesus sends them and has already prepared for them to eat the meal. And it says when they get there, if you look in verse 14, we see the preparation made in verse 14. Here's where I want us to focus on. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had, they had eaten, he took it and he said, this is the cup that's poured out for you. The cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
the body, the bread, and the cup. Verses 14 through 20 show us what the cross is all about. I want to specifically focus in on verses 19 through 20, though. Here we see what the cross is about and who it's for. Look at verses 19 through 20. We see Jesus says, This is my body, which is given for you. Verse 20, This cup is poured out for you. Do you see the emphasis? The, the meal enacts the cross. It points us to the cross. And Jesus is saying the cross is for you. Broken for you. Blood poured out for you. This is what the cross is all about. It's for sinners like you and me. Sinners like the chief priest and the scribes and, and Judas. It's, it's for the unrighteous. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. He who knew no sin, which is Jesus, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for sinners. The cross is for you and for me. But Jesus shows that we not only must understand that the cross is for us, but we must do something in response to the cross. We, we must respond to what He's done for us. Uh, imagine, uh, perhaps you've had this, this experience before, if you've felt sick and, and perhaps uh, sick to your stomach and you've gone to a meal and the meal has been prepared for you. And it's a, it's a wonderful meal. But you're sick to your stomach and, and you can't take it and eat. If the meal is prepared but you don't take it and eat, you're not nourished by it. You, you don't partake in it. It was a meal prepared, but a meal that you missed. Jesus shows us what we must do in response to the cross. We must receive it. Take and eat. Take and drink. The cross is to be received. Otherwise, it's of no effect. The cross is for you, but it must be taken by you in faith, believing that Jesus died for you, believing that His blood was shed for you, His body was broken for you. And this all comes together in verse 20 in a, in a pretty profound way. We see that the cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. Now, blood and covenant kind of go together. If you look in, in Exodus, verses 24, verses 5 through 8, we see in the Old Testament when Israel had come out of Egypt and he had brought them out of bondage and redeemed them, he established, God established a covenant with his people. It says that he sent the young men of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. And, and then Moses would take the blood and put it in the basins and throw it against the altar. The blood was thrown on the altar. And then they took the book of the covenant and they read it before the people. And all the Lord had spoken. The people said, we will do. We'll keep your word, God. And Moses took the blood again and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It's kind of strange to us today, no doubt. Uh, but blood was, was a reminder that sin required sacrifice and that apart from that sacrifice being applied to us, there was no forgiveness without the shedding of blood is what Scripture says. The covenant was made through the shedding of blood. Now a new covenant's come. And Jesus says it's the new covenant. And, and in particular, the old covenant that we see in Exodus God said one day, that old covenant, he said it in Exodus 30, and it's going to go away. Deuteronomy 30, excuse me. It's going to go away. Your hearts are going to be hard, and you're not going to keep the old covenant. But I'm going to make a new covenant with you. 
And, and we see actually in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, God promises to make a new covenant with his people. And that new covenant, uh, God says through Jeremiah, will, will mean that God will come to you. He will be your God and you will be his people. He'll transform your hearts. In Ezekiel 36, it says that he will put his spirit within us. We'll actually desire to keep his commands. In Exodus 24, they said, oh, we'll keep your commands, God. But if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you know how well that went. It went about as well as it sometimes for us. But here he says, the spirit will be upon you, in you, and you will keep my commands. I will be with you. You'll know me, personal knowledge of the Lord, a personal relationship with God. A transformed heart, intimate union with God. All of these things come because of the new covenant. And Jesus is now saying at the Lord's Supper, the promise of the new covenant is now being fulfilled through the cross. My body is being broken for you. My blood is being poured out for you and it's bringing about the new covenant. And the heart of the new covenant is this promise, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 34 says, and your sins will be forgiven. Matthew and his account says that this is the new covenant, uh, the blood of the new covenant, which is for the forgiveness of our sins. Who is the cross for? Jesus died on the cross for you so that your sins might be forgiven and that you might be brought into a personal relationship with God. This is the, the foundational teaching of what the cross is all about. It's for us. For all of us who will by faith repent of our sins and take hold of Jesus. He died on the cross for us that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be brought to God. Do you know that to be true for yourself? Do you know him to be your savior? Not counting on your work, not counting on your past, not counting on your lineage, your grandparents' faith, your parents' faith, but on Jesus alone for your salvation. He died for you that you might be forgiven and have a personal relationship with him. But can I talk to you as a church for a moment? Who in your life needs to hear that message? Who in your life the one person in your life that needs to know this good news, that Jesus died for sinners so that we might be forgiven of our sins and brought into a personal relationship with God. I mentioned earlier, a few weeks ago, we had an equip class. We hope to make that information available, the audio online soon. But as a part of our time together, we ended with a, a time of just prayer and asking God to, to show us one person in our lives that we will prayerfully pursue and seek to share the gospel with over this coming year. I want to ask all of us to, to pray and think about who's one person in our life that God is putting on our hearts, that he's put in our path at work, at school, our neighbor, a family member, that we're going to commit ourselves to, to praying for, to loving, to serving, to seeking to share the gospel. Not as a project, but as a genuine pursuit of another person whom you love with the desire that they might come to know Christ. It's this simple question. Who's your one? Who's that one person that we will pray for, that we will love, that we will pursue with the hope of seeing them come to faith in Christ? I want to encourage you um, today to, to perhaps write down the name of the person that God might be calling to your mind right now. To begin praying about who that person is. Perhaps it's not clear. Begin praying that God would make it known. Perhaps you feel overwhelmed even by the thought of it begin praying that God would give you eyes to see the people that are around you. What, what would God do if each of us 
who had heard and believed this message didn't keep it to ourselves but made it known to somebody else. Just like somebody made it known to us. Let me extend this just further. We see throughout Luke, Jesus shares meals time and time again with people. Multiple meals he shares with sinners and tax collectors, with his disciples. Jesus is accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. He was so associated with meals that people called him a drunkard and a glutton. You drink too much and you eat too much. And you do it with the wrong people. But here we see why the meal matters so much. As you gather around the table, you really get to know people. Perhaps that's a challenge for us that we need to accept. To open our table up or a meal time up to somebody. To, to open our lives up, to share our lives and to, to seek to make the gospel known. That God might use us. Could we take one meal in the next two weeks to, to seek to have it with a person that maybe isn't yet a follower of Christ that we could get to know, hear their story, look for ways to point them to Christ? Who's our one? Who are we pursuing? How is God calling us to pursue others with the gospel? We can't know this truth that the cross is for us. If we, if we say that the cross is for sinners... The last I checked, every one out of one people are a sinner. The cross is for you. The cross is for us. The cross is for everyone. Every sinner who will hear the message of the cross and and run to Jesus in repentance and in faith will know that good news, that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And all of this brings us to the Lord's Supper. The cross and the Lord's Supper. Jesus says twice as he establishes this meal here, that this is to be done in remembrance of him. He's given the Lord's Supper to the church to practice ongoing until he returns. He says in verse uh, 16, he says, I have desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. And down in 18, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. One day we are going to dine with Jesus and enjoy the Lord's Supper and his presence forever. We anticipate that day every time we gather and take the Lord's Supper. But we also look back to the cross and we remember what Jesus has done. We do it in remembrance of him. Jesus has, li- has left us with the Lord's Supper. And it's, it's fascinating to think about. The Lord's Supper, this one of two practices by the church along with baptism that we are to, to practice until he returns. It dramatizes neither his birth or his life, nor his resurrection, but his death. He's identified by his death. It's safe to say that there's no Christianity without the cross, John Stott said. If the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. We gather at the Lord's table to remember the cross and what Christ accomplished on it. Chris is going to come uh, here in a moment, and our band is is going to come as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. But But I want to press home this point. When we come to the Lord's Supper... We do it in remembrance of Jesus. That's, a, that's an interesting statement. Remembrance of Jesus. To remember something, one, one commentator put it this way, I thought was helpful. The purpose of remembrance was not simply to recall the past, but to represent the past in order to participate in it and extend its effect to the future. We, we represent the past through Jesus' body being broken in the bread, his blood being shed as we take the cup. And as we represent the past, we do so so that we might participate in it. That his 
body broken and His blood shed was for us. For our forgiveness of sins. For our transformation. For our new life. For our hope of eternity. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we look back to the cross as we see it represented before us in the elements of the bread and the cup. But we remind ourselves that Christ died for us. And as we do it, we're strengthened and nourished. The the Lord's Supper should nourish the church with the truth that, that we live by grace. We live because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. This is what is our strength and our hope. The Lord's Supper provokes us to confess our sins. Because we know that Jesus died for sinners. There's no good pretending that we're not. Calls us to confess our sins and to to come and partake knowing that He is the one who forgives. He calls us to rest in the truth that we're united to Christ and to one another. He's brought us into the family of God. He gave the Lord's Supper to the church so that the church would be reminded of their union and fellowship with God as well as their union and their fellowship with one another. Paul, when he instructed the church in 1 Corinthians, he was so concerned that they not take the Lord's Supper in such a way that would provide disunity amongst them. We're called to gather as one body to take the Lord's Supper. So to partake in the Lord's Supper, you must first come to the cross. If you haven't come to the cross, the Lord's Supper isn't for you. It doesn't nourish you. You drink and eat judgment upon yourself. But if you've taken Christ by faith and embraced Him as your Savior, the Lord's Supper beckons you to come and to be reminded that Christ died for you to be strengthened by the grace that He provides so that you might faithfully follow Him. The cross is for you and me, for sinners. God's love displayed for sinners. Let's pray.